Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Mixing Light podcast. And uh, I've got with me today Brom Desmond from Flanders Scientific out of basically Atlanta, Georgia. And Brom, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Patrick. Brom, we've done this before once or twice, haven't we? Absolutely, yeah. I, just for full disclosure, we are going to be at the um, Flanders Scientific. We're going to be at your booth at NAB this year. Yeah, we're really excited about that. Yeah, so are we. I mean, for us, it's uh, it's a, a great marriage. You know, we've been supporters of FSI for, I mean, a decade now, really. Yeah. And in various, in various guises, in various ways. And, uh, yeah, I, I just I, I was really pleased when this idea kind of bubbled up for us to to do some teaching within your booth and the fact that you guys were excited about that. And I want to thank you for that and be, you know, upfront to our audience about, you know, we've got a relationship here that that spans many, many years. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for, for our part, I think what, what we started to realize, too, is that. Um, you can get so much information online now. Um, obviously, there's value in seeing a product in person, but we, we feel that a lot of the reason people go to these trade shows is for the relationships, the experiences, and so we wanted to help support what we think is a very valuable experience for visitors. So let's get down to what this uh, topic is all about, what we want to talk about today. And I, I really want to approach and have this discussion with you as someone who is steeped in professional displays, the technology, the, the bringing it to market. Uh, I really want to take a look at this from s- the point of view of someone who's looking to possibly buy their first professional display. Maybe they've been working with just computer displays and sure. doing color grading on computer displays. Maybe they're even using some of the more expensive kind of like photo displays yep. uh, that, that are somewhat more calibratable. And, and talk a little bit about, maybe we start there, like what's the difference between your run-of-the-mill like Best Buy display and maybe something that's a step up from that, that's more of a photo display that could be used for video. I mean, can, can you kind of explain like that, what that difference is from a manufacturer standpoint? Yeah, sure. So um, I think that, you know, first off, uh, I'm definitely uh, one of those people who think that if you're just getting started as a um, as an editor or even you're doing purely unpaid work as a colorist to just learn the craft, um, I'm not going to be the person to tell you to go out and buy a, a professional reference monitor because that's the, the only way to do it. Um, I, I've said it before through the years, I'll say it again, that I think the point where it makes sense to invest in a professional reference monitor um, with professional connectivity, professional calibration capabilities, is when you start charging clients. You kind of owe it to them at that point. Um, And really, it's about that confidence factor. It's about knowing that your color pipeline is absolutely correct, so that that content then translates correctly when it's QC'd anywhere else, whether that's a a Netflix or a network or whoever it may be, um, that when that content content um, is viewed in another professional reference environment, that your results are entirely repeatable. And that's that's kind of the, the key aspect that I think helps set professional reference monitors apart is that if everything is set up correctly, if your uh, color pipeline is set up correctly, then it should be an entirely repeatable experience outside of your own facility. Part of that comes down to professional inputs, having professional, uh, you know, serial digital inputs that can bypass a lot of the, uh, the OS color management. Um, it's not that you can't get accurate color using 
your you know Windows or, or Mac uh, operating system. It's just that it is definitely not as straightforward, and a lot of times um, it's uh, it's not a kind of a verified signal path, and a lot of work has to go into that to verify that. So we kind of simplify that process. You get the uh, SDI output coming out. Um, it bypasses the uh, the OS kind of management because you're basically using the PCIe lanes to talk to your uh, you know whether it's your DeckLink card or your AJA card or your Ultra Studio or wherever it may be, uh, and that's then sent to your monitor. Your monitor operates in a predefined configuration, uh, typically set from a menu, uh, so there's no doubt about what it is that you're looking at, and you get the results you know shown accurately. We also don't do on a professional monitors typically any of the things that you see on more consumer-oriented displays. There's no noise reduction. There's no motion interpolation that goes on. Uh, it is very much a, a uh, setup where what you send is what you see, and it tells you the truth. So we're not trying to hide things or make them prettier or any of those types of things like you might find on a lot of uh, consumer televisions. And if you're not using professional SDI uh, connections, if you're using consumer inputs, consumer processing chips especially, while a lot of those things may appear to be things that you can disable, you have to remember that they are processing in a different way for a different market. Um, and a lot of times when you turn something to off, you're really turning it to the low mode or something like that. And it may not be, <laughs> be completely off. Th- those are just some of the considerations. You know, there's different, definitely very many levels of display quality. Not everybody needs, you know, a $45,000 display by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. Um, but it really depends on the caliber of work you're doing how color critical the situation is, and how color critical your clients are. And that's really what it comes down to. Well, and I think you make a couple, oh, well, you make a lot of great points in that. And and the first one is, you know, the, the step up to working with paying clients, yeah. right? I mean, I, I just released an insight at the time of this recording. Uh, I just released an insight where I talk about reference displays and, you know, the physical aspects of monitoring in your room and controlling your physical space. And, and that's one of my big points is that insight really is designed for people who are starting to take money. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're doing this for your own YouTube channel, it's okay. But once you start what I call warranty to yeah. your client that that what you're doing as a, a in color correction is an accurate reflections of the ones and zeros, that's where all of this starts coming into play because that's what we want out of our display something that shows us what the bytes and bits on our computers on our hard drives are being represented accurately on the display and Brom what are what are some of the things that can go wrong if you're not careful you know um so it can be simple things like uh, color gamut mapping. Um, a lot of consumer level displays only do very kind of cursory matrix type corrections where maybe your primaries are correct, maybe your grayscale is correct, but if you do something like a color checker, you see that a lot of your values are uh, not kind of what you would expect. There's the motion interpolation, things like not being able to see your frame rate correctly. Um, that comes down almost to more of like an editorial level uh, situation, of course, but um, if you uh, don't see cadence correctly on your screen, then it's very easy to miss something that could be objectionable um, to your paying client. Also, just, you know, color gamuts being in the wrong setup, EOTFs being incorrect so that uh, your image looks uh, darker in the midtones or brighter in the midtones or low lights are clipped or highlights are clipped or color temperature is wrong. I mean, there's so many different variables. Um, and typically what you'll find is that across the range of solutions, you, you kind of have degrees of accuracy, right? It's not a plain and simple right or wrong 
long. It's yeah. just that uh, typically the higher-end solutions will have a greater degree of accuracy, uh, less tolerance for error, and also you know being able to on some of the higher-end solutions hit more modern specifications, um, you know like thousand-nit HDR. P3 color gamuts. Those are all things that you, sometimes you don't find on the less expensive displays out there. You know, I think over the last five years or so where I've really come to understand this is when I really started digging into display calibration mm-hmm. using uh, software like CalMan or Light Illusions uh, Lightspace. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things I discovered, and you start reading those reports, is how your red, green, and blue channels, how they track from black to white, Mm -hmm. just on a pure grayscale. And one of the things I've discovered is as you go up in quality of from, you know, a consumer display to a professional display, the ability to correct errors and not have those errors, say, on the blue channel infect the red channel Mm -hmm. is a big deal. Yeah. You know, and and on those and it seems to me from from what I've read and what I've understood is that's a lot of the problem with some of the more consumer displays is that uh, those errors, uh, you fix one thing and you throw something else out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that we strive to do with our displays as well as um, all of our displays have a very open 3D LUT based calibration architecture so that you can really volumetrically correct all aspects of display calibration. Whereas on a lot of the simpler consumer sets, you may um, just have the ability to do, you know, like a two point or even a 10 point grayscale correction. Um, you know, with our displays, you have both 1D and 3D LUT access. The 1D uh, LUTs um, offer at least 1,024 points of correction. Um, some of our uh, higher mo- higher end monitors actually have over 4,000 points of 1D LUT correction. Uh, and then you have, uh, with, the, with the 3D LUTs, you have the ability to really get um, very precise volumetric behavior out of your displays so that you can correct um, all aspects of that behavior, not just, you know, the primaries and the grayscale again. So um, it's, it's definitely a little bit more open. It's a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, again, not everybody needs that. But if you really want to hit all colors accurately, it gives you that flexibility. You've got some competitors who, you know, they don't take 3D LUTs into their displays. Sure. And But they are considered to be gold standards, right? I mean, they're considered to be highly accurate, and they, they seem to maintain their calibration. Is that simply because the quality of the of the panels that that are operating when you, when we're paying that kind of price. Yeah, so is there, that, there's that a few all about? there's a few things to consider there. So when we say that, you know, if you look at some of our competitors that don't um, ostensibly take 3D LUTs, the thing to remember is that almost all of these displays across the industry, certainly on professional monitors, um, do actually use 3D lookup tables. They might just not right. be end user accessible. And so on a right. brand new display, you're right. There there may be very little real world difference in terms of the way it performs. So a display that accepts 3D LUTs versus one that doesn't, um, they are probably still both using them, like I said. And you may have out of the box, uh, assuming that everything's set up correctly, you may have great response on both. The question is what happens down the line? Because white balance is not the only thing that shifts. So if a display only gives you white balance 
access, then let's say your red primary gets, you know, slightly skewed one way or the other as the display begins to age, which is actually very common. You may not have a great way of correcting that if you don't have the ability to do volumetric correction. So something besides mm-hmm. just correcting that white balance. And that's really, you know, kind of where we, we propose kind of a, a little bit of a value add. And I think the industry, if you look at it as kind of a trend, the number of displays taking 3D lookup tables today versus ones uh, that were taking them, you know, five, ten years ago uh, has grown substantially. So I think that there's a recognition in the industry that giving end users that level of access is important for long-term maintenance and accuracy of their displays because we're not just all using, you know, SEMPTC phosphor displays these days. (laughs) We're we're, we're using uh, displays that can hit a number of different color gamuts, and we may even have to switch between those, or new standards may even evolve. And that's the other really nice thing about having kind of an open calibration architecture like we do is that if there's a refined or changed standard, um, you can actually target that new standard and load a new 3D lookup table into into your display. So a good example of this is at one time, uh, we had a uh, 120 nit white point target. Now the industry target for SDR is 100 nits. So if you want to make that change, it's quite easy if you have a more open calibration architecture that allows for that. Similarly, color gamuts have changed over time. We used to have, you know, SEMPTC was kind of the, the gold standard standard, uh, at least here in North America, for the color gamut you were targeting. Then came along Rec. 709, which has slightly different primaries. Uh, then if you were doing something for Europe, you may have been tasked with uh, delivering something with EBU primaries. If you have a display that allows you to fine-tune and target all those things, even if they weren't initially built in, you have the ability to target those new color space standards um, as they come out. Now, let's take your, your kind of display lineup, because sure. I think that You've got a nice range of displays in a range of price points. And I think a question is, is I, I want to get into color correction. I want to make it into a paying thing. And I want to do it in a way that I can feel good about it, uh, that I'm giving my client what I think I'm giving them, right? Yeah. And, and so I look at like your AM and your BM and your DM series. Sure. And, and the question that kind of comes to my mind is if I go with an AM or a BM, am I somehow fooling myself? No, I think you just have to have realistic expectations. And, and we, we try not to over or undersell clients, right? So if so, someone just needs something to do Rec. 709 deliverables or, um, you know, a, a more classic example of where an AM210, which is kind of our entry-level display, uh, has essentially a Rec. 709 native color gamut. Um, so where, and it's an 8-bit panel is the other thing, where that is useful is let's say that uh, you're an editor um, and you just want to make sure that what you're looking at is essentially what the color is going to be looking at. That is a great monitor that gives you reliable results, things that aren't going to distract you from doing your work because the, you're, you're, you're seeing colors incorrectly, like you might be on a, on a lower quality display. So you can rely on that being accurate. Now, is it as good as a DM240 that's 10-bit? Um, is it as good as one of our HDMI monitors? No, of course not. But it is a reliable display. I don't think you're fooling yourself. I think where you want to be conscious of, you know, do you need a better display is 
are, are you doing primarily color correction? Or are you not just an editor? Are you a, are you a full-time colorist? If you're a full-time colorist, I think most colorists these days would want to at least a 10-bit display. Uh, the DM240 will give you 10-bit color reproduction. You also have a uh, higher contrast display, so you go from 1,000 to 1 to 1,500 to 1. Those better black levels really do make a difference in terms of the picture quality. It has better off-access viewing and things like this as well. So if you have a client in the room with you looking at the same display, um, they're going to see the same color even if they're sitting 25 30 degrees off access so those are some of the benefits as you start stepping up in terms of panel quality and that's not just in our lineup that that's across all brands um, you know your your 8-bit panels your 1001 contrast panels are using typically older panel technology and as you step up in price you get into these nicer panels that offer uh, performance enhancement in just about every aspect uh, that you can think of off access viewing contrast uh, peak luminance capability even things like uh, you know color gamut coverage, obviously. Um, on a DM240, you can do all of P3. On an AM210, you can't. So do you need to do P3 deliverables? Uh, well, that right. you have to ask yourself, wh- where's your target audience and is it worth that price for you? The DM240, I think the other kind of trend you've seen in the industry, and the DM240 is a great reflection of that, is that you can get into a greater than 1,001 contrast 10-bit display with P3 color gamut for less money than you've ever been able to do. I mean, this, that monitor is around $4,000. Uh, when I started in this industry, uh, oh gosh, almost 15 years ago now, I guess, mm-hmm. to get even a 8-bit wide gamut panel, you'd easily pay $8,000. Uh, so to to be where we're at now, I think you can get a lot of value for your money. Now, obviously, there's, there's always going to be kind of industry-leading trends that result in hyper-expensive monitors, because when you're building stuff in the hundreds instead of the thousands, they cost a lot of money to make. Uh, and that's where you get into these HDR displays, which are still very much a niche market. Now, we see that expanding over the coming years, but uh, those are still hyper-expensive displays. And I'll be the first person to tell you, if you don't have a paying HDR project, don't go buy an HDR monitor today. Wait, because they will come down in price. They will improve in performance. I mean, that's just the way of the display industry. It's not a static industry. Stuff really happens very quickly. Uh, now, if you have a paying HDR project, then usually it's worth buying an HDR monitor, of course. But that that really, it's kind of the flip side of the uh, equation, you know, with uh, when do you buy a monitor? You know, you want to do right by your customer. Well, you're not going to do right by your customer until they start giving you money for these projects and these <laughs> HDR deliverables. Right. So, yeah, it's the concept of uh, if I buy it, you know, will they come? And the answer is no, you should buy it about the time that they're walking in the door. Exactly. Exactly. You have to make it pay for itself. And especially with HDR. Now, with something like a DM240, if you're you're an editor or a colorist who maybe maybe you're doing both tasks and you're only doing, you know, 15 percent of your time as a colorist, but you want to step up your game and you want to sell yourself as having better equipment, getting into something like a DM240, it's not that much of a stretch compared to like an AM210 or BM210. You just spend, you know, a thousand or a couple thousand dollars more. Um, and you can really go after that business with, I think, a lot of confidence. But that jump up to HDR monitoring is still uh, quite substantial. It's, it's not this, you know, uh, small increase. You're, you're talking about uh, a multiple many times over uh, to get into proper HDR monitoring. And um, that just doesn't make sense unless you have the paying work to support it. I remember back in the day when we all started out, basically about 10 years ago is probably when I got my first FSI display. Sure. And I believe, you know, it would have been the equivalent of today's dm240 probably not as bright probably not as good at black levels at the yep. time uh for the money that but for the same price right so yep. we've got you know uh, better performance today 
but I remember those being 8-bit, what was it, 8-bit FRC? Well, so that- we have, there's there's lots of iterations, right? So you have you yeah. have 8-bit, uh, pure 8-bit, you have 8-bit plus FRC. Um, now there's different types of FRC. It is high-speed switching between the bit value over and under, uh, and this can happen both in a spatial and a uh, temporal mm-hmm. state. So it allows you to, through this rapid switching, essentially get a perceived higher bit depth than the panel may actually really have. At some time, this was a much cheaper way of, of giving you 10-bit appearance, and most people with good FRC uh, are unable to to actually tell the difference. Um, so it's kind of a, a moot point, uh, whether it's FRC or true 10-bit. Now, you will see the difference if you go to a true 8-bit panel. That is something worth looking at You know, when, as you're evaluating displays, true 10-bit versus true 8-bit versus 8-bit plus FRC. And now, interestingly enough, we are um, starting to finally get in the realm of possibly seeing 12-bit panels out there. That's yeah. that's going to be real interesting. So with, yeah. uh, with 12-bit as well, there's different ways to get 12-bit. So as you see a lot more of these uh, modulated backlight displays, you can kind of mimic, almost similar to like FRC, but it's really a combination of the panel and the backlight steps. You can get something much more equivalent to 12-bit performance uh, by using a combination of a 10-bit panel and then a uh, backlight that modulates at different levels as well. So our XM310K, for example, if you compare a 12-bit shallow ramp on that display versus a 10-bit panel, you can actually see the performance benefit and get something that looks a lot closer to 12-bit. Now, are you going to see that in most of your content? No, <laughs> but I can show you some <laughs> test patterns that show it off. It's kind of cool. So, All right. So before we get off the topic of this 8-bit thing, I thought like 8-bit had kind of like the 8-bit fab plants had been kind of phased out that everyone was going with 10-bit. There, there's or... still a ton of 8-bit being made. Um, I think the thing we have to keep in mind, and, and you alluded to this already, is that there aren't that many suppliers of... It's It's not just two or three, but there aren't that many suppliers, semiconductor suppliers out there making panels. But of the companies making them, the thing you have to remember is that typically the cost for one of these plants is capital investments over a billion dollars. So you have plants going up now that are costing a billion and a half dollars in capital investment to build something. A really, really small plant might might cost $500 million. (laughs) But, But the issue is once you build something like that, even if it was five, 10 years ago, you kind of want to milk that as long as you can, right? So you want to keep that plant churning out panels as long as you can. So as you can find markets for those panels, you want to keep selling into them. So what ends up happening is you're right. Any of the new gen plants being built are going to be building 10-bit panels. Uh, That's without a doubt. The issue is that those plants that were built 5, 10, 15 years ago haven't been shut down. Sometimes they shut them down temporarily and they retool them or things like this. But those plants, by and large, keep churning out panels. And what once may have been the highest-end panel is now only a mid-grade or a very low-end panel, but they keep churning those panels out because there is a market for them. And so something like an AM210 has an 8-bit panel, and we use that precisely because the panel cost is extremely low and allows us to offer a monitor at you know under $2,000 with professional connections, accurate calibration, professional features. But that panel is very old technology, and we'll be the first ones to tell you that. I think that panel was probably... There was a small uh, change made to to it, um, I think, about four years ago, uh, the plant that was churning those out. But the plant churning those out is essentially the same place that was churning out a version of that panel eight years ago, whereas <laughs> the DM240, that's a much more recent panel. You know, I think those panels have only been in production for about – 
three and a half, four years, something like that, I want to say. So those are more recent. Something like the XM311K panel, that's only been out a couple of years in any sort of mass production quantity. Yeah, uh, you know, new panel plants are being built, and almost all those are 10-bit. But it, the moment a 10-bit plant is built, it doesn't mean that all the 8-bit plants are closed. And in fact, with that kind of capital investment, they tend to keep them running, maybe sometimes longer than they should, but they keep them running for a very long time. And then so as I look in on your, and I, you've got, by the way, uh, your website updates have been pretty spectacular. You've got a great little comparison tool yeah, here. Yeah, thank you. So we're looking to get into this. I'm looking to get off my you know, display I got at a Best Buy or bought off of Amazon for a good price. And I want to circle back slightly to where you're talking about professional inputs, where you're talking about going through the PCI card, as opposed to the HDMI out of your laptop or as opposed to the HDMI out of your you know, graphics card, your GPU, your NVIDIA card, or AMD card coming out of your desktop. And and the difference between that and going with an AJA breakout box or a Blackmagic breakout box, and and what what's the, what is it that we're getting at? Like, what's the problem? What is it that the OS is doing that makes this so necessary for us? This has become basically industry standard to have to do this. And you'd think after 20 years, you know, the software developers, the, you know, Mac OS and Windows, they, they'd have fixed whatever the heck they're doing. <laughs> what, what's going on here? Like, why, why can't we simplify this? Well, so uh, I, I think that, that, you know, you have to kind of look at the question as um, uh, assuming that there's something there they want to fix. Um, so they 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 don't they don't they, <laughs> they don't necessarily don't want problem. to fix that because the the things that that we may find objectionable for our work are not objectionable to the vast majority of everyday computer users, right? So right. things like um, like uh, frame rate, for example, refresh rate. So you're not you're not going to have right. a 24 frame refresh of your GUI. You wouldn't like that if your mouse moved at 24p. You'd be pretty <laughs> pissed off. <laughs> so uh, I think that I think that that, that that's kind of part of, part of the issue there. And then color management on the OS level with browsers, with color tags, with that that's still a mess. And, you know, I, I can't really speak to why it hasn't been done better than it has. It should be. But it is still an absolute mess. And we see this with, uh, you know, viewing the same website or the same video in different browsers and how yeah. a lot of times that won't look the same. So it is kind of scary. It's not that these things can't be tackled. I mean, ostensibly, you have uh, bits sent out and bits received, and you should be able to get a clean signal path, uh, whether that's HDMI or SDI or whatever else. It's just, it's a lot more difficult with HDMI. You have to be really good at knowing what you're doing. You have to be able to analyze those signals to know if what you're sending out is indeed the correct thing. With a uh, PCI card like a DeckLink or an AGA, you're much more guaranteed of that because it kind of bypasses what the OS is doing. You're not using a consumer graphics card that may be doing things to frame rate, things to color, and you're not relying on color tags or anything like that in, in video streams to trigger certain things on the display. You're not requiring HDMI handshakes between devices saying, hey, this is what I support. Hey, this is what I can send. Let's come to a consensus about what we're going to do. One of the beautiful things about SDI is you it's kind of a forced situation, right? So you send out a, uh, for example, 10-bit, 
4P signal, and the monitor simply has to lock to that. And uh, it's not going to, the display is not going to tell the connect, or professional display, I should say, is not going to tell the connected sending device, no, 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 I'd really prefer you send me 30P, (laughs) and you know what, I I don't have a, uh, I don't have an sRGB profile, actually, I have this, or whatever it may be. So again, those things are, I don't, I don't want to state that those things can't be worked around. The question is, you know, are you the person who's going to take the time to figure out that path? And is your graphics card capable of turning off all the things it needs to turn off and turning on all the things it needs to do and of managing the color in the way that you need it to manage the color? And then you have to uh, figure out, does the application you're using know how to behave well with those things? Can it use the color management that you set up on the on the OS level of your computer or can it not? Uh, we've seen recent instances of this where clean video out from an application um, actually won't trigger the correct color profile and a display. And there's just no way to work around that. So these are problems, again, that are not insurmountable. But compared to here's an SDI feed, I plug it in and, you know, what you see is what you get and it's accurate. The simplicity and the confidence more than anything, I think, is what you're buying into when you use SDI connectivity and professional I.O. cards and professional monitors. So it's it's not a guessing game. It's a confidence issue really more than anything else. So can you rely on what's being sent out of your computer? Also, you know, it won't be changed by a light sensor on your on your MacBook or whatever it may be, <laughs> changing settings uh, or, uh, you know, night shift coming on or anything like that. So those are, those are kind of the issues you have to deal with. And, and again, some graphics cards will physically limit you from doing the correct things. Some won't but you still have to figure it all out. Oh, really? So if there are some graphics cards where I can't really work around the problem that they're yeah, presenting? Sure. Integra- integrated graphics are notorious for that as well, but okay. also some of the cheaper graphics cards out there. Um, you will have issues where certain frame rates won't be supported, gotcha. certain certain outputs won't be supported, uh, and let's not forget that uh, not all graphics cards can even output 10-bit video, so you may get 8-bit video sent to the display. Um, so, yes, those are are very real limitations that may depend on the type of graphics card uh, that you're using and how that interfaces with your computer. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the fundamental display technology we're seeing today. Sure. You know, as I, as I look through your lineup, I mean, we're basically, we've got LCD, and no matter what, you know, you see at Best Buy, even those LED TVs are LCD. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got OLED. That seems to be the stratification. But within LCD, there's a lot of interesting different things going on. And let's first talk about the sub, like, $6,000 displays. Sure. At the professional level, I guess within your lineup, like, what are the different types of technologies and and that you've seen over, the, let's say, the last couple of years that you guys are executing on now that uh, that can help us inform if, if you're looking to get into this so you understand how to compare different types of choices you're making. Yeah, sure. So the first thing to, to, to note is what type of LCD panel is actually being used. What is the actual front right. panel? Um, most of the high-quality panels out there are IPS. Um, there's also a lot of PVA panels. And then the super versions of those, as I like to call them, so you may hear them referred to as SIPS or SPVA or HIPS or any of those things. 
but they're all basically um, very similar technologies. Typically, EVA technology, you can get very good contrast, but you tend to have um, a lot of this kind of black crunch type issue that happens. So when you look on access, your low lights can actually become a little crunched and you go off access and suddenly have details in the low lights. IPS, on the other hand, maybe not as natively high contrast, but you have much better off access behavior on those IPS panels. Now, you have, again, higher and lower end versions of that. So something like a DM240 uses a better type of IPS panel that is actually more efficient at blocking out light. So you get a higher contrast display there. So you get 1,500 to 1 contrast as opposed to on some of the lower end units also using IPS panels but lower lower quality versions of IPS, you may only have 1,000 to 1 static contrast. And that that, that 1,500 versus 1,000 to 1 does make a, a real difference in the perceived black levels. But more important than a kind of... The those things even is, um, and how you can kind of differentiate the different LCD panels out there or the type of backlighting they're using, right? Um, So you have your kind of lower cost white LED backlights. These are not very wide gamut. They basically do Rec. 709. Some of the really cheap displays on the market, not anything we carry, but we'll do even a lot less than Rec. 709, so very narrow gamut. Then in the past, we've had a lot of RGB OLED, and the reason that people used separate red, green, blue LEDs was because that allowed them to actually go a lot wider gamut. Now, the issue with that is now you have different types of LEDs that age at different rates, and also when you view from an angle, you may get more of one of the elements than the other, so you can have this kind of color shift in one direction as you move left and a color shift in another direction as you move right on the display or up and down as it may be. That used to be the way we got to wide gamut, but there are a lot of challenges in terms of long-term stability and those other performance aspects. So one of the kind of more recent advents in backlighting technology has been essentially wide gamut white LED backlights. And that's where things like PFS phosphor LED has become uh, quite popular. And you see a lot of that in our lineup across other uh, uh, monitors, both uh, GUI monitors uh, and professional reference monitors. You see a lot of this PFS phosphor backlight technology. And what that allows you to do is go very, very wide gamut. So you can do P3 or more uh, native color gamut on the display, but you still have a white LED element there as opposed to individual red, green, blue channels. So you get much more uniform aging over time, a lot less color shift, and also much better off-access viewing. So as you go off-access on these displays, you don't get you know kind of a red tint one way and a blue tint the other way or whatever it may be. So that's kind of been one of the more exciting developments. Also, those backlights combined with some of the latest IPS panels, it's actually a combination of those elements that allow for the higher contrast because the panel is more efficient at blocking out the specific type of light coming out uh, from those uh, LEDs. In addition to that, you of course have OLED technology and you have different flavors of OLED technology. You have red, green, blue OLED. You have WRGB OLED, so the white, red, green, blue, also sometimes called WOLED, which is what you see on the larger displays. And uh, I don't know if I'm jumping too far ahead of, I I skipped over. Well, let's talk about where the heck is my, like, sub-$10,000 OLED? I mean, they just disappeared <laughs> off the face of the earth, and yeah. I'm not happy about it. 
Yeah, so there's a there's a couple things to be aware of. There is that um, there was really only one manufacturer of red, green, blue top emission OLED, and they stopped manufacturing those panels uh, quite some time ago, actually. So everybody's been kind of riding on existing stock, and you've seen most companies, including ours, end up discontinuing those 17 inch and 24 inch OLED panels because of that. It was a great technology, offered very good performance. It was very expensive. Uh, the yields were never quite as high as I think that manufacturer had hoped. And mm. the problem that you have with, with any of the display technologies on the market are that if you cannot find a mass market avenue to push your panels, it does not make sense to operate one of these 500 million or 1 billion or 1 billion and a half <laughs> you know, capital investment plants. You need these things to be running 24-7. You need to be able to push out hundreds of thousands of panels at minimum a year in order for your product to be able to compete at any sort of significant level. And the issue you get into, as good as red, green, blue OLED was, they did have some significant limitations. So it wasn't particularly good in bright environments. It wasn't well suited to HDR, which was a growing need. The yields, again, continued to remain relatively low. So that meant that producing them at kind of a cost-effective price was was very difficult. And what we've seen in general in the kind of uh, semiconductor side of the business is that a lot of this has become a lot more commoditized and the people who are winning the battle of you know making panels a good business for them are the people who are able to find these very very large markets and the market has shown that it's extremely price sensitive so price is right. a huge factor so if you can't do it low cost you're gonna have a hard time competing it's kind of unfortunate but all I think happened honestly is that it accelerated what likely would have happened to RGB OLED in the long run anyway, because as we have this push towards HDR, the technology was not well suited to HDR. You simply did not get the lifespan out of the panels, and you did not get the ability to avoid burn-in that you would need to make them viable, long-term, affordable HDR solutions. And while it would have been nice to have it for a few more years. I'll admit that. Yeah, I think yeah. long term, they kind of would have gone the way of the dodo bird anyway. So now let's kind of switch gears a little bit again. And now I'm I'm a colorist. I'm really happy with my DM250. I'd love to get myself into a reference display that can do, you know, the industry standard thousand nit HDR. And, you know, the price points are still pretty extreme. Yep. And... And from your lineup, I mean, that's getting into the XM series, right? I yeah. I mean, that's, if I want that, that's where I have to look? Correct. And and the thing that you'll see is that there are a few different ways to achieve HDR uh, when you start going back to LCD technology. And one way is with zoned backlights. So uh, if you have a zoned backlight, a modulated backlight, you can typically get very high light output. You can get pretty darn good black levels because you can essentially turn off the backlight in certain areas. So that's an efficient way to get a high nit output on your display. There are challenges with zoned backlights, though. And those challenges uh, amount to pure physics, right? So you have... Yeah millions of pixels, but how many zones do you have? If you have 500 zones across a 4K panel, that's not a particularly good ratio. So the more zones, typically, the better performance you get, but you still have to worry about halation and flare and motion artifacts and all these different types of trade-offs for that high-knit output, which is why another technology that has become quite popular as of late... Before we move off of that, go ahead. Yeah. on the zoned backlight array LCD, sure. 
Uh, is there diminishing returns? Like, there's only so at some point you putting extra back extra zones just isn't worth it? Yeah, so that, that's, or, a, that's a great question. And there's definitely a point of diminishing returns. It's not just backlight zone count that matters. So one of the things that matters is how good are the algorithms that drive the backlight plus the LCD combination. Good algorithms versus bad algorithms on the same number of zones, you can really tell the difference, especially when it comes to things like motion handling and pre- preventing the appearance of halation or flare in the image. But then on a pure physics side, yes, there's a diminishing return with algorithms being the same, let's say. As you start to increase zone count, at some point, you're adding a lot of cost and complexity for a diminishing return. And the reason for this is because of physiological issues, right? So you have, when you look at a very bright, you know, thousand-nit dot, even if it's only a 10-pixel by 10-pixel size thing on screen, if that's at a thousand nits and you got black all around it, zone size between something that covers, you know, just those 10 pixels versus covers 20 pixels or whatever it may be, is not nearly as important as one might think. And that's because you get this kind Mm -hmm. of uh, veiling glare uh, that happens within your eye, right? When you look at a bright light at night or even in the middle of the day, you get this kind of glare that happens from that bright object. Can you see a full black pixel next to a thousand nit block of pixels? Probably pretty hard to do, especially in motion. Now, if you stop the video and you let your eye adapt and you maybe shield a really bright thing and then you do all these different things, you might be able to see the difference. But there is definitely a point where that halation and flare becomes quite imperceptible. And so it may not be worth paying two or three or four times as much. So that's a a great question. And I think that's uh, something that's still a little bit unanswered. Um, uh, As a brief aside, I'll say that I recently went to CES and I compared a display that had 2,000 zones versus a display that had 15,000 zones. And the oh, display, yeah, and the display with two thousand zones looked a lot better with a lot less halation and flare. So it's not just zone no count. Kidding. That's not the only thing that counts. Uh, algorithms have a lot to do with it. Kind of an enlightening experience because I, I knew kind of on the yeah. theoretical level that it wasn't just all about zone count, but to see it in person was quite Im- quite impressive. Again, there's a point also where you know you don't get away with too few zones. Uh, some of the early zone backlight systems were like 128 zones. 128 zones, yeah. you're going to see issues. So it's uh, it's worth going yeah. to a slightly higher zone count. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Apple famously has this problem now with their new display. Sure. And I, I know the question that a lot of us have is, can they solve this in a firmware update or in a process, like an algorithm update, like you say? So we don't and like I, to talk... I, too much about I our competitors, you know. but I yeah. will say that that um, there are certain things relating to calibration and other concerns that I've seen aired about that and other displays on the market that can certainly be addressed with OS or firmware updates on various displays. But there are certain problems that are physics problems, and you can't get around yeah. that with clever algorithms or anything like that. You know, in the case of the Apple display, just so you know, the physics works out to one zone per about 35,000 pixels. And that is uh, just a real-world limitation, you know, and it, it may not be a deal killer for everybody. It depends on what your application is and what you can live with. Uh, I think if you're just watching iTunes movies, it might be might be really impressive, actually. So, <laughs> Well, and let me ask you about that CES, uh, that display you saw with 15,000 uh, mm-hmm. zones. Was Is the point there that they can really kick up 
uh, the peak nit value on that? Is that is that what they're trying to do, or so I don't? I don't they're just trying in theory to get just a better looking image. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to throw this particular manufacturer under the bus, so I won't mention yeah. their name. But um, yeah. their whole marketing spiel, uh, as printed next to this display, was that it greatly improved performance by having significantly less halation and flare than lower zone count okay. systems. Right. I looked at it and I kind of had a chuckle because I was like, "Yeah, this is one of the worst looking ones on the show floor." <laughs> All right, so let's get off of that. And yeah. so, and on your lineup, we're talking about the XM three ten. So, sure. so what you've done is you've taken the zoned backlight array LCD, you've leveraged its real uh, strength, which is max nit value. Sure, right? Yeah. And so, if you need to deliver and master at three thousand nits or two thousand nits, you, we can do that on that display. Exactly, uh, and that, that's why we made that. So we made that display because we wanted to help in pushing the industry forward. And if you if you ever see a 1,000-nit grade versus a 3,000-nit grade, you can very easily be convinced of the value of 3,000 nits. Now, the problem is, of course, are you willing to put up with the trade-offs for that? Because there are trade-offs. And as I tell people all the time, if, if we could have just made either an XM311K, which is our 1,000-nit unit, and a, or, or an XM310K and just settle on one and have that be it, that would have been great for us. It would have made our lives a lot right. easier, actually. <laughs> but, but the truth of the matter is that there are a lot of people who are quite content at 1,000 nits right now who don't need more than that, and there are serious performance benefits when you go that direction. However, if you need to go over 1,000 nits, you currently cannot do it with the technology we're using in that 1,000 nit display. So if you want the high nit performance benefit, you kind of have to go to the zone backlight systems. And of the zone backlight systems, we tried to build the best thing possible. Um, so we have something with over 2,000 zones. We have something that gets substantially brighter than most of the options out there. I think the 310 is still one of the, you know, at the time of this recording anyway, things change quickly. It is one of the brightest commercially available HDR monitors. It can do over 3,000 nits. We we advertise at 3,000 to be a bit conservative, but a brand one, a brand new one out of the box can easily crack 32, 3,300 nits. So that's the advantage of that unit is, is that high nit output. And there are definitely people who are delivering stuff mastered over 1,000 nits. It's a niche market, but it's a market that we think will continue to grow. And it's something that we decided uh, needed to be addressed, which is why we made that unit. And just so our, our listeners uh, understand, I mean, we've moved off, you know, we were talking about so, some of these other LCDs that their contrast ratios, you know, on the top end, the DM240 is 1500 to 1. Now we're starting to move into on the XM310, 311, a million to one. So we're, we're talking a dramatic leap in terms of what's going on, even though it's still LCD. Yeah, absolutely. So what we what we have is yeah million to one contrast ratios uh, because we are able to modulate that backlight, turn things completely off. We can of course talk about light modulating cell layer, which is what we have in yeah, the 311K. Yeah, let's move on to that. So, so that's a 311K. So that's the light modulating cell layer. Can you tell us a little bit about what's the difference between that approach and the zoned backlight approach? Yeah. So 
just as a review, um, light modulating cell layer um, is what a lot of people also just refer to as dual layer LCD. Essentially, what right. you have is a backlight that is always on. Uh, it's always putting out, you know, full knit level that it's capable of. And then you have a, a standard LCD panel up front. So that's got your red, green, blue filters. That's what gives you the color. And then behind that, you have a monochromatic LCD layer. And that acts as just a, a second panel that helps block out a lot more light. So with the front panel and that mid panel combined, we can go from, you know, a uh, thousand to one or 1500 to one contrast to a million to one or greater contrast. And that has a lot to do with, again, the physics of those LCD panels. If you have 2000 to one contrast panels stacked on top of each other, those actually kind of have a uh, multiplying effect on, uh, right. on how well they can block light. So you get these, you go from thousand to one contrast again to a million to one contrast, uh, simply because we can block a lot more of that light. So it's an impressive system. Um, as you can imagine, it, it has its challenges as well. Um, so one of them is cost. Um, and uh, the other is that it generates a ton of heat because if you say, if the you, backlight's <laughs> always on, right? Yeah, the backlight's always on, and we want to be able to do a 1,000 nits full screen on this. So yeah. the beautiful thing about it, though, is there's no loading behavior on the display. So you can do a 1,000 nits full screen. You can do a 1,000 nits over a small area. Most other um, uh, HDR technologies are zoned backlight systems included. The uh, RGB uh, top emission HDR OLED monitors that we the industry had for a couple of years all had this type of issue where you could do a small square at a 1,000 nits, but then if you, if you want to do full screen, they would typically not be able uh, capable of uh, giving you that same light output. So one of these RGB OLEDs that can do a thousand nits over a very small box, maybe able to only do, you know, 300, 350 nits full screen. And that kind of has this fluctuating contrast that can be kind of aggravating uh, to a colorist. With light modulating cell layer, you don't have any of those issues. Um, so that's kind of a beautiful thing about it. Now, the the challenge with this, of course, is that if you want to go over a thousand nits, it's extremely difficult to do because even if you open up the valves, if you want to think of them as valves uh, on the, uh, mm-hmm. or the shutters, I guess would be a better analogy, of the red, green, blue LCD panel and that monochromatic LCD panel, there's always some light loss as you go through these materials, right? So to try to get this thing to do over a thousand nits requires a lot of power from the backlight. And a clear example of that is if you look at the power consumption of our 310K and our 311K, the 311K actually, even though it only does a third of the light output at the screen level, consumes more power than the 310K that does 3,000 nits with the zone backlight. So those are some of the challenges you get with light modulating cell layer. Now, something that's kind of my crystal ball into the future, something I think we're going to start seeing is a combination of these things. Uh, And that could be real interesting because you could select to have Hey, I'm doing my thousand nit grade. You know what? I'll just I'll I'll have my light modulating cell layer uh, set up, and we'll just set it up for static setup, million to one contrast, thousand nit peak. Great, I'm good to go. Now someone comes to you and says, Hey, you know what? I need a two thousand nit grade of this. You might be able to switch one of these types of displays into a mode that now turns it into a zone backlight in addition to light modulating cell layer. And you're not going to do two thousand nits full screen, but maybe you could do two thousand right. nits over a small area, get those peaks as you need them. Combination of those two panels in front, you'll have a lot less of the type of artifacts or restrictions you might have on zone backlights. Now, I imagine that technology is probably going to be pretty expensive. 
expensive. But we're already starting to see rumblings of this on the consumer side. I know for a fact that there are rumblings of this on the pro side amongst several manufacturers. So I kind of see that as being where where the industry might be going in the next few years, at least until we get to the you know future of uh, smaller scale micro LED and all those types of technologies as well. That could be very interesting too. Now that change is that a, is that a requirement of the fabrication of the panel in order to move to that zoned light modulated cell light? So it it uh, is can be a combination of things. So the thing with light modulating cell layer is that light modulating cell layer doesn't prescribe necessarily how the backlight needs to be designed. Right? You could have, in theory, an edge lit light modulating cell right. layer that's not a full array. You could have a full array with uh, very few zones. As long as the LEDs get bright enough, you could have something that has 128 zones and throws out all the light you need. If you want to have a combination of that, it's going to require a fairly high density array of those zone backlights to, again, avoid some of the problems you might have with zone systems. And it will require uh, componentry in the unit to drive the unit as a modulated backlight. Modulated backlights typically require not just different firmware, but also hardware capable of driving zones individually and modulating those rapidly in sync with the front panel. So yes, it does require both different hardware and different firmware to drive uh, drive the displays, but it's not a stretch to see those things coming to market. I think that in the future, we'll probably see some combination of that. I'm excited about it because it helps solve uh, our long-term conundrum of having to carry two types of technology, right? <laughs> so uh, we'll see. we'll see if that you know, how soon those things actually come out. I think that uh, as with anything, as you do the first iterations of these, they end up being hyper expensive and there's certain limitations. We we decided, uh, you know, I think we, we joked when we first started talking to each other, Patrick, that we wouldn't make displays that are more expensive than the cars <laughs> we drive. The, the, pro- the problem is we got into a point where a lot of people, I guess... You started driving really expensive cars no, is the I, problem. I, 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 think, I think we had more and more people uh, as we became more accepted through the industry. And we get a lot less of what yeah. the heck does Flanders do. We get a yeah. lot, less of, le- lot less of that these days. So people come to us and they specifically ask for these things. So it's funny. We a lot of time get comments on uh, on either social media or through email and go, you guys are crazy selling a $35,000 display. I'm like, yeah, but we didn't make it for you. We made it for, for the company that's beating our doors down to make the thing. So it's not us trying to sell that to everybody. It's just us trying to do that kind of tip of the spear approach to meet those niche industry needs. And that stuff eventually filters down. And we've already seen that. You know, a 311K, when it was brand new, first introduced was a $55,000 monitor. It's now $35,000 thanks to advances in the amount of units being sold, not just through our brand, but other brands using that same type of panel technology. Now, I've been seeing, uh, I guess maybe at CES, you might have seen this. We're seeing like 40, what is it, 42-inch or 45-inch panels that are pretty high quality hitting the market. That kind of surprised me. Uh, I I assumed everything was going, you know, 55, 65, and 85, you know, 95. (laughs) But we're we're starting to see them get a little bit smaller now, which I think is kind of good for us in, you know, working in our you know, color grading suites. Yeah. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you're absolutely right. We used to see this split in the industry where basically there's a, there's what I always refer to as a dead zone, uh, typically in that 30 inch to say 50 inch or so size range. Nobody wanted to make good panels in that range. And that was because the end users at home who are willing to pay premiums for the higher quality TVs typically also wanted the very large TV for their living room. Yeah. They wanted the, the yeah. 55 
55, 65, 75 if they could get it. So you saw a lot of focus in manufacturers making those. And then on the smaller size, a lot of people were targeting, you know, high-end gaming, high-end photography applications, certainly a little bit our industry. But we have to remember that our industry is a very, very, very small drop in a uh, very, very large bucket. (laughs) Uh, So no one's making stuff just for our industry. It's just not the reality of the situation when it comes to the semiconductor manufacturers. To that end, you've certainly seen in the past a focus on making very high-quality 24-inch panels because there was a huge market for that outside of just our industry. I think what, what's happening now is that you're seeing that certainly when it comes to computer monitors, there's been a growing industry or a growing market need, I should say, for 30-inch, 32-inch, 37-inch yeah. displays. So you have more and more of those manufacturers starting to hit those technologies. Then the other thing that happens is as certain technologies mature, these companies kind of naturally look for ways to expand. So while they may not have originally been interested in making something smaller than a 50-inch, once they've kind of saturated the market of 55s and 65s, they have enough people who are asking them for something smaller than 50 because it's, it's all that will fit in their living room or whatever application they may have. And so you're seeing some of that as technologies mature. The LG OLED is a great example of that. There's a 48-inch LG OLED now. I think they have they have had enough people ask for a smaller format, something that takes up less size uh, or space than a 55-inch. And you'd be surprised how much less space a 48-inch takes up than a 55-inch. So they're starting to go after those markets. And I think that's, like you said, a good thing for for us. I think we'll continue to see, however, that as new technologies come out, things will typically land in that 24 to 30 inch zone as kind of a sweet spot yeah. for new technologies. And then in that 55 and larger zone, because those are typically traditionally have been the sizes where consumers are most likely to spend a premium. What about getting those smaller sizes at, uh, let's say, UHD resolutions? Uh, for, you know, finishing and, and color grading work. Are, you think we're going to see some of that come up? Yeah, absolutely. And we, we've we long kind of said the same thing about this. You know, people ask us all the time, hey, where's your 24-inch UHD monitor? It's not that we don't want to do one. It's just that if we're going to do a 24-inch UHD or native 4K resolution panel, we don't want it to be worse quality than a DM240. And right now, yeah. the vast majority of panels are worse quality. So, Everything else tends to get worse at this moment. Now, that could very well change. But right now, um, you're looking at worse off-axis viewing, typically lower contrast ratio. So you may only be able to get a 1,000 to 1 contrast um, in the 4K variant or the UHD variant of those. And that's been the limiting factor. It's that we don't want all aspects of display performance besides resolution to get worse, especially on something like a 24-inch panel, where the added resolution is a very limited benefit to you because you have to sit very close. Yeah. Uh, to actually see the difference. We're not saying it's not of value to certain people. If you're doing, you know, if you're doing rotoscope work all day, every day, then yeah, you know, you may want something yeah. a little bit higher resolution. <laughs> Hopefully you're not stuck doing that on just a 24-inch monitor and they've given you something a little yeah. bit larger. But absolutely, if we can get higher res and we are starting to see that now where Previously, it was hard to even find a good quality 4K resolution unless you went 55-inch or larger. Now we're seeing a lot of 30-inch options on the market, and we started building units around those, of course, like we have in our 311 and our 310K. So we'll continue to evaluate panels like we always do, and once we find something that that we think is as good as a DM240 and gives us higher resolution and is not 
cost prohibitive because that's the other factor. How much are you willing to pay for the additional resolution that yeah. most of the time probably doesn't matter much to you as a colorist, at least. So Yeah, Robbie has uh, said that on his 310, he really loves the size factor there. Yeah. Uh, you know, he kind of puts it exactly where he used to put, you know, the 24, 25-inch display. Yeah. And and he said, you know, especially on 4K stuff, I really get – I'm sitting close enough to it that I can really see the detail in that UHD image and sure. get – or that 4K image and get a real sense of – of what it is I'm delivering. Yeah, we, we agree. And we think that, you know, we've said for a long time, even before we had 30-inch monitors, that we thought approximately 30 inches was where there started to be for the application that a colorist would use it in, some real benefit to that kind yeah. of UHD or greater resolution. Um, below that, again, if you can get it without any negative uh, impacts to display performance or cost, Great, that that's wonderful. But if you can't, then it's uh, it's just not not worth the the you know losing all the other aspects of display performance. Brom, thank you so much for your time. We're no we're over an hour here, <laughs> and uh, I know you're a busy guy. Yeah. And it's a busy time of year. Uh, so do you want to tell us what you're going to be delivering at NAB? <laughs> uh, not yet. Stay tuned. Um, I think there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in display technology. Um, I think that... Um, you know, besides the myriad of, you know, technologies out there, you have other interesting shifts on the semiconductor side that I think are going to play out well for the end users. And we see that in, you know, production of panels moving to different countries. That's going to mean lower cost. You know, Japan used to be the market leader, then Korea became kind of the market leader in a large, large respect. Uh, Now we're seeing, you know, the advent of of things in Taiwan and in China that you're, you're looking at you're looking at panels that are not just commodity, you know, low quality stuff. You're seeing really high quality stuff starting to come out of there at better prices than ever before. I think it's hopefully is good for the industry as a whole where we have what everybody's looking for, which is all this top end performance without the, the top end price. <laughs> and Brom, to finish us up, as we look forward over the next five to 10 years, do you see anything that I might read about in Display Daily or in any of the trade magazines where they talk about future tech. And do you see anything there that you find really compelling that as we look forward through the decade that you think we should keep an eye on that looks really, really interesting that may or may not make it to market? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the thing that a lot of us have our eyes on um, are uh, micro uh, LED displays. Um, it's a really right. interesting technology, really, really fascinating. I think that there are a couple challenges. One is kind of bringing it down to the sizes that, that we would want for this industry. The other is cost. Uh, right now, very, very cost prohibitive. Then there are other challenges that I think will be overcome by the time size and price are figured out. I think that some of the challenges that are currently being experienced um, with longevity of the product, stability of the product, calibration of the product, I think those things will be figured out by the time price and size are figured out. But for now, it's it's still too early. There are some really large-scale micro-LEDs that look quite good. At CES, I, I went and actually looked at every micro-LED install that I could. It was one of the things that I kind of set out for myself to look at. 
of those, I can guarantee you only one was calibrated. All the rest were nowhere near <laughs> calibrated, which says a lot about the difficulty of calibrating those accurately. And maybe they didn't care or maybe it's too difficult. I'm not sure. But that is a fascinating technology that can give us, you know, currently, you know, projector size images, but with much higher contrast, much higher light output, extremely wide color gamuts. I mean, everything about it is theoretically quite beautiful if you have a million dollars or more to spend. And then the, the other other kind of issue on the larger ones, at least right now, is that they are still tiled systems. And so if you yeah. catch the light right, if you're looking at it at the right angle, uh, depending on the content you see, you see the, the seams and the tiles, even though they're supposedly seamless, where those tiles hit, you tend to be able to make those out. And I think that in real world use, that would kind of get annoying for especially a colorist who, who's got his eye on those types of things. So I, I think that that's a really fascinating technology, though. I hope it uh, succeeds. Um, um, one of one of the things that I've learned in my 15 plus years of doing this now is that a lot of times the best technology doesn't win out, and things yeah. that that look like they were going to be phenomenal go away. And we've seen it time and time again. Our CRTs were were pried from our you know cold dead hands well before we were ready for them to be. Plasmas went away well well before there was a great replacement for them. We had um, we had the RGB uh, OLEDs recently that went away a lot sooner than I think people wanted. So a lot of times the kind of commodity nature of this industry kills the products that colorists are the most in love with. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I hope that doesn't happen in this instance where something uh, cheaper comes along and wins solely on price. And I think that's something we have to be, always be aware of as we look into the future is it's real easy to peg the technologies that on a performance level should win, but should win does not usually equal actually wins in this industry. And so we all have to be very careful in our prognosticating. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brum, let's wrap this up. And I want to give you an opportunity for taking, you know, spending all this time with us, educating our members. You know, where can they find your products? Where can they learn more about your company? Sure. And what channels they can reach you at? It? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the plug. So uh, flanderscientific.com yeah. is where you can find all the information on our products. You'll also see a live chat button there where you can get us on, on chat for support or sales-related questions, you can email us at sales at flanderscientific.com. We have two online stores, one that covers Europe, which is shopfsi.eu, and then we have a shop that covers basically all other territories, and that's shopfsi.com. And then, of course, uh, if you are going to NAB, find us in South Lower Hall, 6823. Uh, we have a lot of exciting things that we want to share with you. And, of course, we'll have the lovely Mixing Light people there with us as well. <laughs> we and uh, we have a Facebook page, an Instagram page, all those things. <laughs> They're all linked on our main website. So we are available for you in just about about uh, whatever platform or avenue you prefer to communicate. Thanks a lot, Brom. You know, I think one of the very first questions I ever asked you is, uh, why does anyone choose to compete against Sony? Yeah. And I think it's insanity. <laughs> I'm fairly sure. Uh, no, but, uh, you know, we have a passion for this. And while a big company like that or any of the number of other companies uh, make some great displays, the fact is that they also make, a you know, a million other products. We focus on just this one thing. And because we have a very kind of narrow scope, we think that we have a lot of expertise to offer. And it's fun. It's a challenge for sure. But we really enjoy what we do. We love displays. We love color scientists. And we love uh, bringing these innovative solutions to market. So, Well, there it is. So Brom Desmond from Flanders Scientific, thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick. And uh, that's it for this special edition of the Mixing Light podcast. 
I'm Patrick Inhofer, and I'll see you next time.